Today's sermon is the return to the book of Hebrews. And the sermon is entitled, The Suffering Savior, Why? A Suffering Savior, Why? And in our return to the book of Hebrews, which we were in some many months ago, I want to quickly, in a whirlwind kind of way, review the book of Hebrews, what we saw at least uh, when we were last in the book. Number one, we suggested a title for the book of Hebrews might be Milk to Meat. We suggested that a short sentence that might encapsulate the book of Hebrews would be press on to spiritual maturity because of a superior savior. We noted that the first readers of the book of Hebrews were converted Jews, Jews who found fulfillment and completion of the law in Yeshua, Messiah, Jesus. We're saved the same way that we're saved, by transferring their trust to his finished work on their behalves on the cross. And we also saw that these who trusted Christ, who were Jewish, who first read the book of Hebrews, were being persecuted as they read the book of Hebrews by unconverted Jews and by Gentiles that were not at all pleased that they were running to Christ as Savior and Lord. And so the temptation of the first readers of the book of Hebrews was to revert, to backtrack, to turn around 180 and to go back to Judaism to play it safe to stop rocking the boat, to take away the fears they might have had of being martyred. That was the temptation of the original readers of this book. The book says that Jesus Christ is better. It says that he's better than the Jewish law. Why? Because he fulfilled it. He's better than angels. Why? Because they worship him. He's better than Moses. Why? Because he created Moses. He's better than the Old Testament priesthood. Why? Because his sacrifice was once for all time, never needing to be repeated. And he's better than the Old Covenant. Why? Because he started a new and a better covenant that we celebrate in the New Testament of our Bibles, the inspired scriptures of the New Testament, the New Covenant. And in continuing now in our review, a whirlwind review of the book of Hebrews, we said in times past that we in the 21st century live at the 21st story or the 21st floor of the skyscraper that is called Christianity. The Christianity skyscraper has, by the faithfulness of God, been built to the 21st floor, and that's where we live and move and serve and pray and trust and study on the 21st floor of this skyscraper called Christianity. But on the first floor of the first century, God had to validate a new message as to how a person would be saved. Salvation's always been by God's grace through faith, but God in the Old Testament called his people Israel to exercise their faith in him by seeking to obey his law, which they couldn't do. And the law was a tutor to lead them to their need of a savior, Jesus. And on that first story of this skyscraper called Christianity, the new message that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, that was a message that needed validation. And graciously, God in the first century validated that message, that new message, by signs and wonders and by Persons speaking in tongues, which were known languages that were previously unknown by the speaker of those tongues. We as a church family believe that the sign gifts that were in the first century, floor level of the skyscraper called Christianity, are no longer operative today, including tongues. But we have brothers and sisters in Christ 
All of us have brothers and sisters in Christ who believe that tongues are for today. That's okay. We agree to disagree with them in love. But we live on the 21st floor of the skyscraper called Christianity. And today we're going to see that on the 21st floor where we all live and minister, that God has designed it, that salvation comes to everyone to whom it comes through a suffering Savior. God has willed it that when salvation comes on the 21st story of the skyscraper called Christianity, that it will come only exclusively by the work and sacrifice of a suffering Savior. With that review and preview in place, I want to turn your attention to Hebrews near the end of the New Testament. And if you have your Bibles, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2 or turn on your devices and go to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to begin by reading the first nine verses of Hebrews chapter 2. Hear the word of God. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it, that is, back to Judaism. Verse 2, For if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was in the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also bearing witness with them, watch, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. That's the first story of the skyscraper. Verse 5, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but one is testified somewhere, saying, What is man that thou rememberest him? Or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Verse 9, but we do see him who has been made a little for a little while, excuse me, lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the context that precedes the single verse I'm going to bring to your attention this morning as our sermon text, which is verse 10 of Hebrews 2. The verses that flow into verse 10 inform verse 10, as all contexts of Scripture do. These verses I've just read of context give us three reasons why God designed it that our salvation would come to us through a suffering Savior. Three reasons. Ready? The first reason, God has the prerogative to do so. (laughs) He's God. He can decide to do anything he wants when he plans salvation for reprobates and rebels like me and you. It's just his right to do that, to declare that salvation would come to those of us who would believe in a suffering Savior. Second reason God has designed it, that salvation comes through a suffering Savior, is this. It's in line with the pattern 
that God usually uses. You are aware that there is a pattern that God usually uses. He used it in the Old Testament, he used it in the New Testament times, and he uses it today. There's a pattern, and the pattern that God delights in using over and over and over again is the glory after suffering pattern. The glory after suffering pattern is God's favorite pattern. For us in salvation, For us, salvation only comes to us after we've suffered under our own sin and transgression and messed our lives up. Verse 2 and 3a of our passage, for if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And so this glory after suffering pattern, we see it in our own salvation. But that's, there's more. This pattern also is seen in Jesus' crown coming after his incarnation, Jesus' crown coming after his crucifixion, and Jesus' crown coming after his death. We see that in verse 9 of our passage. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of his death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So this pattern we're seeing of God's pattern, a favorite pattern, the glory after suffering pattern, we see it in our own salvation, and we see it in Jesus Christ's earthly ministry turned into a heavenly ministry. But there's more examples in nature. Spring comes after winter. I should say that my mom and dad are getting thawed out from Canadian winter. My dad, Don, and Mary are here in the front rows, and we're so glad that they're with us. They're just getting thawed out because in Canada, winters are tough. They're cold. They're snowy. They're icy. And in nature, spring comes after winter. The glory after suffering pattern. But there's other examples. If you take the Bible characters that we love in Scripture, Old and New Testament, I think we would be hard-pressed to find one Bible character whose life wasn't lined up with this pattern. Glory after suffering. Adam and Eve. Abraham. Moses. Joseph. Saul, who came to be known as Paul. Peter. John. There's... I, don't, I can't think of a Bible character whose life pattern wasn't glory after suffering. But there's another example that we're not going to get a new heaven. It comes after a sin-smeared earth. God's delighted pattern that he always uses is the glory after suffering pattern, and that's why he willed it, decreed it, decided it, that we'd only have salvation come to us through a Savior who first suffered. And so you get the point. God uses this pattern over and over again. So let me ask you a question that I've asked myself this week. If that's the truth, if God uses a glory after suffering pattern, then why do I think I'm exempt from that pattern? Why do you think you're exempt? That you have a past from having to live that pattern? It's interesting that in God's GPS system, Sorrow is not a dead-end street. In fact, in God's GPS system, sorrow is the on-ramp to the interstate freeway of (laughs) Christ-likeness. If we're honest, 
let's be real, we are often so desperate for heaven to say recalculating when we're suffering. We want heaven to say recalculating so that we get another route, gets us out of suffering as soon as possible and into pleasant stuff. See, really, what, what it comes down to is we think we deserve a glory after ease pattern. <laughs> Jesus might have had a glory after suffering pattern, but I think I deserve a glory after ease pattern. I want victory in Jesus without any battles. <laughs> I want a spiritual life that's a cotton candy diet. A cotton candy diet. A cotton candy diet is sweet at first, but it's harmful all the way. I may have told you before of the nature lover who looked through his window at a monarch butterfly cocoon in the branch of his tree. And he watched that cocoon. He was eager to see in the springtime when that cocoon would release a beautiful monarch butterfly. And sure enough, after several weeks of watching the whole thing, the cocoon started to have a little break in it. And he could see that the butterfly was trying to push itself out of the cocoon. And it wasn't getting very far any day. And every day and every day, very little progress was made. And so finally, he thought he'd help the monarch butterfly. And he went out to his yard and went up to the branch. He took a razor blade and he very, very gently cut the cocoon open so that the butterfly could get out. Well, much to his horror, when he cut the cocoon with the razor blade, yeah, the monarch butterfly came out. It flapped its wings about three to four times, fell to the ground, and died. He went in the house and Googled what happened, and he found out that only way that monarch butterflies are viable and can fly out of their cocoon is if they have the effort and the pain of pushing it out with, over a long period of time and maturing their wings. And by taking away the suffering of the monarch butterfly, he took away its life because the life for the butterfly was in the suffering. <laughs> God has willed it that his son, our savior, would suffer to save sinners from our sins. That's what the father planned. Jesus wasn't the victim of Rome. Jesus wasn't the victim of the Jews. Jesus was smack dab in the middle of God's redemptive plan that included that he suffered all that he suffered, the flogging, the crucifixion, even the rejection temporarily of an intimate relationship with his heavenly father when he bore your sins and my sins on the cross of Calvary. All God's will. <laughs> when you look at the gospels, you'll see that Jesus' path was never a one of ease, never. You'll see that figuratively he never walked downhill. Jesus always walked uphill. You'll see that Jesus wasn't served as a rule. He served. You'll see that Jesus' ministry wasn't cotton candy. It was cruel contention. You'll see that Jesus' path to the crown he now wears went right through the cross of Calvary. And most usually... Subjects always die for their kings. But in God's economy and plan, God the Father had the king die for all his subjects. Oh yes, a suffering savior is by design. And so to review, we've seen that why God the Father planned it for God the Son to suffer 
Two things we've seen. First, reason one, it was prerogative, God's prerogative. He had the right to make the plan. Second, it was pattern. It was according to God's usual pattern of working. Let's see the third reason, also a P. The third reason is perfection. What Jesus suffered and how he suffered revealed Jesus' perfect humanity. It was Jesus Christ's suffering which highlighted his perfect human perfection. Verse 10, our verse for today. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. That, if I underline my Bible, I would underline that. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So question, does that verse mean that in his humanity, Jesus Christ wasn't perfect until he suffered? No, it doesn't mean that. Jesus Christ has always been perfect from eternity past, the uncreated Son of God, second person of the triunity, the Trinity. Jesus Christ has always been perfect. Jesus Christ is perfect. And Jesus Christ will never cease being perfect. So it wasn't that his sufferings caused him to be perfect in his humanity. No, not at all. When Jesus appeared on the banks of the River Jordan and John the Baptist had been baptizing believers of the Jews that were repenting of their sins and being baptized in the River Jordan. Jesus appeared on the bank of the river, as you well know, and he didn't take baptism because he had any sins to repent of, of course. What he took baptism was to identify with the nation of the Jews, to be one of them, as it were. And so he was baptized by immersion in the River Jordan. If you've never been baptized by immersion since you've been saved, you ought to be. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. But at that scene when Jesus appeared on the River Jordan's bank and John the Baptist saw him, you know what happened. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He tried to have Jesus stop in the idea of being baptized by him, but then he did baptize the Lord Jesus. And as the Lord Jesus was lifted out of the waters, you know what happened. The Spirit of God descended as like a dove and the audible voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus' perfection in both his deity and his humanity was unwavering. And so what this verse doesn't mean is that he didn't become humanly perfect until he suffered. No, that's not what it means. What it does mean is that his perfection in his humanity was not fully known until they saw how he suffered on the cross. They could see that he suffered well. They could see that he suffered perfectly. They could see that he suffered without sinning. And it showed them that he is perfect in his deity, but also perfect in his humanity. So let me illustrate. Beth and I go to PI quite often to swim at Cabbage Beach. We love to get our exercise by swimming. And we go there often to swim at Cabbage Beach for exercise about a half a mile. Every time we cross the bridge, of course, we have to pay the toll. How do I know that the car ahead of me paid enough toll? Simple. You just see if they raise the barrier for it. If they raise the barrier, the, the person paid two bucks. It's not rocket science. How do I know this afternoon, if I were to watch NFL football, 
how do I know if the athletes who are playing this afternoon in the NFL playoffs, how do I know if they're trained adequately the last week? Simple, just watch how they perform. Do they get winded? Do they limp? It's easy to know if they trained adequately. Just watch the game. How do you know if a Christian is self-controlled by the Holy Spirit? Well, seeing how they react when they hit their own thumb with a hammer. How do we know that the Lord Jesus was perfect in his humanity? By observing in Scripture how he suffered without sin. Jesus Christ passed with flying colors the test of intense suffering. He did not ever sin in it. While being tortured, in fact, and while dying and nailed to a cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow. He didn't sin. He witnessed. <laughs> he prayed. And it's the Lord Jesus' perfect and holy and sinless humanity that was best known when he went through intense and undeserved suffering and did not sin in any way. The Greek word, which is translated to perfect, has the meaning to show as being adequate. Let me read verse 10 with that rendering. For it was pleasing for him whom, for whom all things are and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory, watch it, to show himself as being adequate through sufferings. How do we know that the Lord Jesus was adequate in holiness to be our sin substitute? It's easy. By observing scripture that he did not sin, though he greatly suffered. Help to understand, I think, why God willed it that he provided a savior who necessarily would suffer is found in these verses. Great help. And so to review and to conclude this message, there are three reasons given in this passage why the Father willed it that the Son would have to suffer to provide salvation. Number one, because it lined up with his prerogative. He had the right to make that plan. Number two, because it lined up with his typical glory after suffering pattern. And number three, because it highlighted the human perfection of the Savior. Or if you like alliteration, that's three Ps. Prerogative, pattern, and perfection. Prerogative, pattern, and perfection. Now, at this point in the service, as we're looking at the end of this sermon and landing the plane, as it were, I see Chris Cartwright is here, our safe pilot. Hi, he lands safe planes. Ken Sindelovo is in the early service. He lands safe planes. If I'm missing any pilots, I apologize. At this point in landing the plane of this sermon, we need to be like the woman who had a very serious conversation with her doctor. He told her some very weighty and serious health issues she had, and we need to be like her when she faced that reality and asked him the question, where does all this leave me? And then she asked, how should I think and live knowing this? And third, is there hope for me? Those are the kinds of questions you should be asking right now in light of learning that God willed it that his son would suffer to provide your salvation. You know, it's always a wrong question to ask me, is the sermon done? <laughs> because no sermon is done until it's done. No sermon is done until I do the sermon. 
No sermon is done until you all do the sermon. And so how do we do the sermon? <laughs> how do we live the sermon? Well, I want to make a very concrete suggestion. You ready? I want you to make yourself a cup of tea this week. I want you to put all your responsibilities temporarily on hold. I want you to disregard your phone. It's ringing. It's WhatsApp. It's text, all that. Just disregard it. I want you to slow right down. I want you to commit to being totally honest with yourself and totally honest with your God. And I want you to ask God for a hunger for God. And then when you are in that posture, I want you to ask some questions and with God's help to answer those questions. You ready? The first question I want you to ask is, will I not settle for a little God? Will I not settle for a little God? A sub-question under that one, am I okay with God having the prerogative to do whatever he wants with my life? Am I okay with God having the right to do whatever he wants in my life so that I'll follow him, so that I'll wait for him, so that I'll trust him, so that I'll thank him, so that I'll hope in him, so that I'll be convinced that his plan is the best plan for me, the on-point plan for me, the on-time plan for me, the on-scripture plan for me? Will I not settle for a little God? Am I okay with God having the right to disassemble my dreams? Am I okay with that? Am I okay to receive from God, but then to give to others? Am I okay with that? Am I okay to have persons betray me if that is God's will for me? Am I okay to have persons talk negatively and critically about me when it's not true. That's what they did with Jesus. Am I okay with God having the prerogative to let that be my experience? Am I okay for God to call me to heaven earlier than I anticipated? And so maybe the bow on top of all these questions is, will I accept that some of God's best recipes have the ingredients of sugar and vinegar? And so the umbrella question, the first question to ask over your cup of tea, will I not settle for a little God? The second question, will I wait and suffer now for a better and easier later? Will I wait and suffer now for a better and an easier later? Put another way, will I wait for glory after I suffer? Will I see that no cross, no crown is not just for Jesus, but, but no cross, no crown is for me as his follower? Galatians 2.20, you may know it. Paul writes under inspiration, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Wait a minute, Paul, you were alive when you wrote Galatians. Yeah, but positionally he understood, I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave, delivered himself up for me. You do realize the best way to see yourself is how heaven sees you. 
And how heaven sees you this morning, if you're saved, is that you're crucified with Christ. There were no survivors from crucifixions. (laughs) Will you believe that you ought to see yourself as heaven sees you as a believer, and that is no cross, no crown, that you've been crucified with Christ, the old you. Will you stop wanting only cotton candy Christianity? Are you willing to suffer? (laughs) The fact is that some of God's best recipes have both sugar and vinegar as ingredients. And so we ought to ask ourselves, by the way, you could take your hot tea to Goodman's Bay and sit on a beach towel and get alone with God and get alone from your phone and alone from your little kids and alone from your work. You could go to Goodman's Bay and sit on a beach towel with your cup of tea. But I'll tell you something, if you don't do something like that and you just try to do that with all your other things whirling around you, you won't benefit from this exercise one bit. So if you see me at Goodman's Bay on a beach towel with a cup of tea, leave me alone. And if I see you on a beach towel, I'll leave you alone. Promise you. Will I wait and suffer now for a better and easier later? I've heard the true story of the new entry hire at a company who asked for three weeks of vacation before she started her first day of work. Will I suffer now for an easier and a better later? Will I stop singing victory in Jesus without ever expecting to fight a battle? And there's a good question, next one. What expectation of ease must I give up to stop being so angry? What expectation of ease must I give up to stop being so angry? Again, the question that umbrellas all these others, the second question is, will I wait and suffer now for a better and easier later? The last question I want you to ask with your cup of tea is, will I keep looking down? (laughs) Not will I keep looking up, but will I keep looking down? Listen to Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, watch it now, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That verse is saying to you, if you are redeemed, if you are saved, if you are converted, if you are new in Christ, that actually, positionally, right now, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So you got to keep looking down. <laughs> Look at that. That driver cut him off on Dowdswell. <laughs> keep looking down. Look at that. I got told about a serious disease. Keep looking down. What about somebody broke a promise to me in the church? Keep looking down. Seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Keep 
looking down on your circumstances. Keep your mind in the heavenly places where you are seated with Christ. You say, oh, pastor, I can never think of myself that way. I could just never think of myself that way. I say to you, wouldn't you want to think of yourself as God thinks of you? And he sees you seated with Christ in the heavenly places positionally. So keep looking down. And what that means, if I'm going to keep looking down, I have to welcome dying experiences. There, I die almost every day. God brings a dying experience to me, a right to give up, a prayer to offer, a forgiveness to, to give. I die daily, the scriptures say. Welcome dying experiences. Don't crave cotton candy Christianity. It's not biblical. Your old person has been crucified with Christ. Your old person has been buried with Christ. Your old person has been raised with Christ. Your old person is ascended with Christ and seated in the heavenly places. So keep looking down. (laughs) Keep looking down. Again, you can't do this exercise. You can't live this sermon if you try to do it without shutting down your phone and putting aside your responsibilities and getting somewhere where you can concentrate on God. I challenge you. Because unless you do that, you will never know Christ's victory in trials. You will never live as a conqueror over sufferings. For it was fitting for him for whom all things are and through whom are all things in order to bring many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings And you and I are perfected in our faith in Christ the same way through our sufferings. Please pray with me. In fact, would you stand before I pray? Please stand. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for volunteering to be our suffering Savior. The rejection, the accusations, the flogging, the being crucified, the temporary estrangement from your Father. Thank you. We see prerogative and pattern and perfection in your suffering for us. And therefore, we worship you. We adore you. You are bigger than any of our sufferings and you have purpose in them that we would be conformed to your image. Please forgive us when we grumble in our sufferings. Help us to see with the eyes of faith and scripture that suffering is not terrible but rather your root and your recipe for our sanctification to glorification. And last, Lord Jesus, we count it as true that 2 Corinthians 4.16 is our testimony. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, 
Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name and God's suffering saints said, Amen.